0: If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 12 this morning as we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are beginning this morning at verse 22, and we're going to look down to verse 34, Luke 12, 22 to 34. You'll find that on page 871 if you're using a copy of the church Bible, and as usual, I know you're going to find it uh, important and helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning, Luke twelve twenty two to thirty four. And before I do read this and uh, preach God's word to us, let me pray and ask His blessing on it. Father in heaven, again we turn our hearts to you as uh, children to their father. We cry out to you, acknowledging that we have nothing, we are nothing, and you have all wisdom and power and might. And glory and dominion it all belongs to you you are infinite eternal and unchangeable in all of your perfections and so we pray that you would grant us divine wisdom we pray that you would grant us divine power through the preaching of Christ crucified and risen we pray our father that you would change us from the inside out that we would leave this place and that our hearts would be changed by your word and by the working of your spirit we pray that you would not leave one person in this room unchanged this morning. Lord, would you please accomplish your purposes through the means that you have appointed, especially by the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 12, beginning in verse 22. Remember, Jesus has just uh, given that parable of the rich man who uh, gains a great increase and wants to build bigger barns. and. Yet to whom the Lord says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And he gives that warning against covetousness. He says, beware and be on guard against all covetousness, all sorts and forms and species of covetousness in the soul. And now Jesus turns to his disciples and Luke says, he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, or be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I know I've shared this story with some of you in years past, but it's one of those Uh, experiences in life that I'll never forget. Uh, I was working construction, and on this particular day, my boss had had a uh, load of dirt piled up on the side of a house, and we arrived at the work site, and he handed me a metal rake, and he said, get raking. And I was like, oh boy, this is going to be fun. There's a huge pile of dirt. And I I was fairly anxious in life at that time um, I wasn't making much money didn't know what career path I should take I was a new believer and now I had to rake this pile of dirt here for 927 an hour and um, as I raked and I was meditating, on the verse I had read that that morning. It was my practice to take a verse of scripture with me as I went out and started my day, and I would try to just take one from what I read and meditate on it, and it happened to be that morning, uh, the verse here in Luke uh, 12, 24, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds? And on my way to work that morning, I was meditating on that, and then my boss handed me the rake, and I probably forgot about the verse very quickly, and I started raking the dirt. And about an hour into my work, I noticed that all these birds were getting unusually close to me. And I thought, you know, I, I my parents really liked the Audubon Society. We had bird books. I never read them. I didn't know a lot about birds, but I knew that birds don't generally get close to you out in public unless you're feeding them. And I didn't understand why all these birds were were getting so close to me and weren't scared, scared of me in this big rake I had. And then I realized what they were doing. They were eating the worms from the dirt that I was raking from the pile. And I, re- I stopped and I thought, this is unbelievable. That God was giving me in a almost supernatural way a living example of the very verse that I read that morning. I was laboring and he was feeding his birds. Now, I tell you that because we spend the better part of our life anxious. Um, One well known theologian stood up at a uh, conference many years ago now and he said, uh, All right, I'm going to ask a few questions and I want a show of hands. He said, How many of you get anxious? And every hand in the building went up. He said, How many of you have committed adultery? And not one hand went up. And he said, You have just proved to me what you think is the acceptable sin. Now, Jesus actually talked a lot about anxiety as a besetting sin. Uh, Luke has noted several times already in this gospel that the danger of anxiety. Remember, the disciples were on the boat, and they saw the wind and the waves, and they lost control of their own hearts. And they were anxious and worried, and they went and they woke Jesus up, and they said, "'Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing?' They were overcome with anxiety and fear and worry. Um, A little later on, Luke will note that uh, Martha, oh, hospitable Martha, was in the kitchen making a meal for the Savior, and her heart was torn in every direction. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things, but one thing is needed. So Luke has has already identified the problem, of having an anxious or a worried or troubled or fearful heart at several points, And the way in which Jesus then addresses and seeks to deal with that anxiety and worry in the hearts of his disciples. Well, here Jesus has turned his attention from the crowds and warning the crowds about covetousness and the evil of covetousness that now he turns to his disciples. And one of the things you have to love about the Savior is he anticipates every objection, every response or reaction that we might have to something he has just said. It's one of those wonderful characteristics about Jesus. No sooner does he teach something like, hey, beware of all covetousness because one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he or she owns, that he knows that the question his disciples might have is, well, okay, then what if we give away all that we have, will we be provided for? Who will take care of us? Is it wrong to be industrious? Is it wrong for us to work hard so that we can have for the provisions of life and a dozen other questions that are going to flood their minds and their hearts. And what Jesus is doing is he is addressing a very real problem in the hearts of his disciples. He is addressing something he knows that wells up within us so quickly the second we start to pay attention to what he says about giving away and caring for others and holding loosely to possessions. The very next temptation is going to be to become anxious and worried and fearful about the necessary provisions of life. Now, what Jesus is going to do here in this well-known and um, extremely instructive section, beginning in verse 22, ending in verse 34, is he is going to give us first a command not to be anxious. Very simply, he's going to give us the command not to be anxious. And then secondly, he's going to give us a remedy to anxiety. And it is a very... Diverse and important remedy that he's going to give us. We'll notice that uh, Luke tells us, he says to his disciples, Jesus has turned his attention from the crowds, and now he speaks more intimately to his disciples. It's interesting. Jesus knows exactly who needs what at what point, and he knows that the hearts of his disciples are, are pondering the question. Are we going to be provided for? You know, Peter will ask this question later. He'll say, Lord, we left everything. What will we get? That's the the logical question. If we give it up, what do we get? If we hold it loosely, what do we gain? Um, And Jesus is going to, first of all, tell his disciples, don't be anxious. Now, no one has ever been truly helped by somebody telling you, don't worry. In the 80s, one of the worst phenomenons of Western society was um, people running around with these uh, uh, tank top T-shirts with a smiley face that said, don't worry, be happy. So if you lived in the 80s, you saw that guy on the beach. They were everywhere. I remember as a kid being like, why would somebody wear this? I wasn't very stylish, I didn't have a lot of fashion savvy, but, but I, I thought that was odd. Smiley face, that became the emoticon that you use in your phone now, the emojis. Smiley face, don't worry, be happy, that actually came from an Indian sage, uh, uh, Mahar Bebe, in the 1960s. He would go around, there were posters, don't worry, be happy, and then, you know, the song, uh, then a, a very annoying song came out of that, that you hear, repeatedly until you're dead. Don't worry. Be happy. And no one's ever been really helped by that. There's no real help with that. It's just saying escape the realities of life. Don't set your mind on things that could perplex you or trouble you. By the way, it sounds very pious to just tell someone, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Um, Jesus doesn't say that. He does say Don't be anxious. Notice verse 22. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. So he does say it's never okay to be anxious. He does say to his disciples, do not allow anxiety, worry, and fear to take the driver's seat of your heart. Now, John Calvin has a very interesting meditation on this. Before he says anything in his comments on this section, he says Jesus is not saying don't have any concerns about anything. So the Savior is not saying don't have any concerns. The Bible everywhere teaches that we are to work hard, we're to be diligent, we're to try to be wise, we're to be good stewards, and, and a dozen other things about how we are to live our lives in this world. The Bible says if a man will not work, neither will he eat. Um, The Bible uh, tells us that the hand of the diligent will rule. Um, The Apostle Paul says that he wept. Morning and evening over his deep concern for the churches and for the people in the church. His heart was weighed down with care and concern for the souls of the people of God. So in every sphere, at every level, it is right to care about things. It is right to have a proper concern. Calvin will go on to say what Jesus is warning against is an immoderate care, is an immoral care, is an excessive care, is a consuming care that that overcomes us and so we scurry about busily trying to fix whatever it is that we ought to have a proper concern about, not to have an immoderate concern about. So I want to say that at the outset. Jesus is not saying, don't worry about anything. Don't worry, take it easy. Jesus is not saying, take it easy. But he is saying, it is never okay, ever, for us to live in anxiety and worry. An unjustified fear. Now, his disciples are certainly thinking, well, we've just, heard, we've just heard that we ought to lay up treasure in heaven. Notice verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. They, they've understood the point. The rich man should have given away. He shouldn't have stored up for himself. That's the point. They've heard that. They've gotten it. And, and so he knows their minds are going to say, well, if we give it all away, then, then we're not going to have. And I mean, we have to think about this and we have to think about the years ahead and we have to, we have to factor in this. And by the way, you can justify away all your sin until you're in the grave. All of you and I, I am smart enough to justify away all my sin and so are you. So um, Jesus gets out in front of that And he says, there's no reason for you to be anxious about any of the necessities of life. Um, You know, it's interesting. Tim Keller says, anxiety is a daily statement to God saying, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. Anxiety is a daily statement to God in which we are saying, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. You would never verbalize that, but your actions and our hearts say that, and our lives reflect that. Um, Phil Riken makes the point, and this is so helpful, far from adding anything, Jesus will talk about you can't even add one day, second, minute, whatever span to your life, which is what we ultimately want. Um, He says, far from adding anything, anxiety always subtracts. Worry is a thief. It steals our time. Our thoughts turn to our troubles. Then rather than praying about them or doing the things God calls us to do, we waste time worrying about them. Worry steals our rest. We lie awake at night anxious about tomorrow and then we get up too tired to work hard. And this only adds to our anxiety. Sounds like Phil Reichen has experienced that. Worry steals our health. We suffer the physical effects of anxiety. The Bible says anxiety in the heart causes depression. Anxiety steals our health. We suffer physical effects from anxiety. Worry steals our obedience. It tempts us to other sins. um, Irritability, laziness, and, and even on the other hand, overwork. Worry steals our hope. We fear the worst about the future. All kinds of difficulties arise in our minds, most of which will almost certainly never come to pass. So anxiety steals, it doesn't give, it takes away, and so Jesus wants his disciples to have peace in their hearts and minds. And so he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. You know, some people really do live... In heightened anxiety about what their next meal is going to be, whether they're wearing the right clothes, you know, when you when you catch someone or maybe you've done this, um, you know, staring you up and down, what you're wearing, it's it's the being consumed by the trivial things of life, the lesser things of life. Jesus is saying that, and he'll say that in the remedy. These are the lesser things. Your bank account is a very little thing. I don't care how much money you have. To God, it's nothing. He doesn't need your money. Your neighbor does. Your church does. But to God, it's nothing. Where you're going to get your next meal, what you're going to eat, it's nothing to him. It's trivial. Um, Now, Jesus gives that command. And I've already said it doesn't help anyone just to tell them, "Don't don't be worried. So now Jesus, being the wise physician of souls that he is, is going to give us the remedy. He's diagnosed what sorts of areas uh, anxiety springs up in. He's given the diagnosis. Now he's going to give the remedy. And notice that Jesus is very astute. You know, before John Audubon, I thought about this recently. Jesus was very keenly interested in birds. He, 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 he was sort of a ornithologist. That's what Audubon was. He 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 liked to study the birds. He's already used one of the bird illustrations, right? He said in the account just before this, he said that uh, that if the father takes care of the birds, is he not going to take care of you? If notice verse, look back in verse five. Um, he says, "Fear him are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God." So he he takes account of the relationship between the living God and. The sparrows, And here he moves to the ravens, and he is now playing off of the man with the barns. It's all connected. The man had great increase, and so he was consumed with self-interest. I'll build bigger barns. I'll have many goods for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. You're dead. And Jesus now says, look, the ravens, they don't have barns. They don't have barns. Now, some animals do store up. Squirrels store up. Jesus is not saying it's wrong for an animal to store up. He's not saying boo to the squirrels, hooray to the ravens. He's not doing that, so get that out of your mind. But he is showing an extreme case. He realizes here is an animal he and his father had created. Here is a bird of the heavens that did have to look for food, but didn't toil, didn't didn't expend a tremendous amount of energy, had no storehouses, ravens don't store up, and yet their food is always there. You know, if God wanted me to rake the dirt to feed the birds, they're going to have food on my energy, my labors, the, the work of another. Um, and so one of the first things that Jesus does when giving this remedy is he says, I want you to look at creation. I want you to look at creation. I want you to see the created order. I want you to take a keen interest in how God governs the lower world of creation, the birds, and and in a minute, the lilies. I want you to see that he takes care of those things. You know, I, I don't like revivalistic hymns. I'm sorry if you do. I'm not a fan of revivalistic hymns, and I've never particularly liked singing His Eyes on the Sparrow, But He Watches Over Me, but there is incredible theological truth to that statement. How often do we see the sparrow and we don't think he's watching over me? How often do we sing His Eyes on the Sparrow? Probably not much in 2018, but when we were young, girl, <laughs> and we sang His Eyes on the Sparrow, But he watches over me, but we really don't believe that. He's saying, listen, your father in heaven cares for the raven. Consider them. Think about them. Meditate on them. God feeds them. He then, in calling us to consider the lower creation, uh, takes a different dimension. Now, the first question that he answers with the raven is, how do I know that I'll be provided for? How do I know that there will be provisions for me? And, and he points to the birds and says, there's always provisions for them. There will always be the food and the clothing that you need. Now, he's not saying that you won't die of starvation. He's not saying that. That might happen. But through the duration of your life, he will care for you. David said, um, I'm, I was young and now I'm old. And yet I've never seen the righteous hungry or his descendants begging bread. He's saying the same thing. God takes care of his people. He provides for his people. Um, The second question that anxiety may latch onto and may throw out there as an objection is how am I going to make my life endure? Because at the end of the day, everything I'm doing is about making my life last longer, right? So when we're anxious about food, it's because we're health. we, we We want to ensure we'll be here another five years, another 10 years, another 15 years. Um, Jesus has already said that to people that think like that, he often says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. It will come suddenly. Um, And yet there's a sense where Jesus wants us to understand that God is going to care for his people through the duration of their life. And so he picks something very temporary. He says, look at the lilies of the field. You've seen them. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow, very short existence. The sun causes them to fade, they're only here for a very brief time, and yet they are more gloriously clothed than Solomon in all of his glory. Now, if you remember the account of Solomon in the Old Testament, the Queen of Sheba comes to see his unbelievable kingdom, his palaces, his riches, his wealth, his wisdom, to hear his songs, to see all that he knew about the birds and the trees, his gardens, his armies, his power. I mean, Solomon was the most lavishly clothed and adorned king. And Jesus says the lilies of the field are better clothed by God Then Solomon, and you know what? Here's the punchline. They don't even think about it. They don't do anything to get that way. They're not trying to be clothed. They're not running after possessions. The infinite God takes note of lesser creation and clothes it in magnificent ways. And Jesus says, why would you worry? Because you're of more value than the bird's. And you are of more value than the lilies. Your life will last longer than the lilies' life will. God will take care of you, He will feed you, and He will clothe you. Now, what Jesus has done, and I don't know if you've caught this, is He's sort of pulled back the veil of the visible world, and He's shown you the invisible world of the divine care and providence of God over His creation. So here's, this is, by the way, one of the coolest things in the world. William Still, on his sermon on this passage, said the Christian is living in two worlds simultaneously, and only the Christian. The Christian is living in the seen world, the world of birds and flowers and food and clothing and the tangible, the visible world. The Christian is simultaneously living as a citizen of the invisible world. Writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 says, By faith we believe that the things that were created were not made with things that are visible. So God creates the world out of nothing by himself and brings the world into existence. The visible world is a byproduct of the invisible world. And only the Christian can see that. Which is why I think Jesus turns to his disciples to say these things and not to the crowd. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say it to the general masses. He says it to those who have left their possessions to follow him and to commit themselves to him. And now he's saying, listen, walk through life by faith, not by sight. We sung that this morning. We'll live by faith and not by sight. Live in light of the invisible world. John Calvin has this amazing meditation on Genesis 1. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. It's kind of thrown a wrench in a lot of uh, theories about the Genesis 1 and 2 account, even among ministers in the circles in which I run. And what, How could there have been light and trees and bushes, and how could there be a plant-yielding seeds without a sun? Because in Genesis 1, God creates uh, the dry land and the, the trees and the herb-yielding seed, and, and there's care For that, without a heavenly body, and what John Calvin says is, Oh, don't be so foolish as to become so naturalistic that you think that ultimately the sun is what makes those things live. No, God makes them live, God gives life to you and to every creature and to every tree and to every living thing, and He doesn't need a sun and He doesn't need rain. It's actually remarkable. Read Calvin on Genesis 1, it's remarkable. He sees the invisible world. And he says, even the visible things are sustained, cared for constantly, pervasively, without any break at any second, at any time by the living God. Your next breath, he's doing it to you right now. The invisible world is permeating this visible world in this room. And we go through our life and we forget that. And so Jesus says, don't forget that. He says, that's the first remedy as it were, to getting over covetous anxiety and covetous worry and an undue care for possessions and things. Remember the invisible world and the sustaining power of God. Um, it's interesting, William still uh, points out now, secondly, that Jesus' remedy is uh, generosity. So he's going to give us layers of remedies to anxiety. First, he's going to say, remember the invisible world. Remember the providential care of your father. And then notice, he says, notice verse um, 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So, he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and where no moth destroys. So the second solution remedy to a a covetously anxious and fearful and worrisome heart is to give away what you have. Um, William Still says, here Jesus is teaching us to have an attitude of what we might call divine carelessness. It says, ah, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and invest in real estate. Real estate of the unseen world by which this world was made. I love that. Jesus wants you to invest in real estate in the kingdom. Not here in your measly, weak, whatever world you've created for yourself and I've created for myself. He says, provide yourself money bags in heaven where it's safe. He's not saying, this is very interesting, by the way, if, you're, if you are consumed with greed, and we are all consumed with greed far too much. By the way, I was cut last week. I'm cut this week. You should be cut. And don't try to quiet a conscience that is cut by the words of Christ. Go to Christ with that conscience. Um, It's very interesting. If you're a person that is consumed with greed, you tend to think, I can't give it away because, you know, then I won't have it. And Jesus is saying, well, you're not going to have it if you don't give it away. But if you give it away, you're going to keep it. And that takes faith. Only those who can see the unseen world can actually act like that in this world, in the visible world. You can't take it with you. You know that. Can't take it with you. You can't even enjoy it to the full here. Now, Jesus is going to do a third thing in connection to giving the remedy to an anxious heart over possessions. Before I say that, I, I do want to emphasize this again. God doesn't need your money. Please hear me saying that. God does not need your money. But he wants you to use what he's given you for the spread of the gospel, for the care of his church, for the building up of his people, for the service of the poor and the needy. That's what he wants us to be most invested in. Now, how do I get there? Because I can say this to you, and I can say it to myself, and then I can look at my life, and I can say... I'm really not as generous as I would want to be if I could be. And then and then maybe we start to compare ourselves with others and say, well, you know, they do this and I'm doing this and that. Don't do that. Please don't do that. That would be the wrong thing to do, is start comparing with others. Um, but notice what Jesus essentially says, and this is this is supremely important in getting everything that Jesus says here in the section. Jesus basically says now, the reason you have a covetous heart, the reason your heart is consumed by greed is because you're not wanting enough. Now, if you're listening this morning, you should say that doesn't sound right. Right? We tend to think I don't have enough, Therefore, I want more. And what Jesus says is look, your Father, it's His pleasure to give you the kingdom. By the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I just, I, first time in my life, I've ever seen this. I was reading a theologian I really love, and he was talking about Jesus' preaching of the kingdom. And, and he calls it the kingdom in the Greek. He uses that, the um, article the kingdom. Why does he call it the kingdom? Because it is the kingdom of kingdoms that we belong to. All the other kingdoms are just little nothing kingdoms, but the kingdom of God is the kingdom. He says, seek first the kingdom. He says, your father is going to give you the kingdom. He's going to give you the kingdom. Notice Jesus says, fear not little flock. This is the remedy. It's your father's good pleasure. Verse 32, to give you the kingdom. You're going to be a possessor of the kingdom of God forever. That's awesome. That is awesome. And so Jesus says, so seek that first. So when I'm being anxious, when I'm worrying, I'm seeking second things first. C.S. Lewis has an article in God in the Dock called um, first, things, first and Second Things. And this is what Lewis says. You have to listen very carefully. Because remember, Lewis says in, in The Weight of Glory that our desires are, are not too strong, but they're too weak. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is saying you're not wanting enough. Our desires are not too strong. They're too weak. We like created things because our desires are not strong enough to desire God and the better portion and the kingdom in Christ and the infinite greatness of God. So we desire the lesser things and Lewis says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. Remember, he says, we're like children in the slum playing with mud pies, not even knowing that we've been promised a holiday at the beach, vacation at the beach. Well, Lewis, in that article, uh, first, first and Second Things, he says, uh, you can't get second things by putting them first. So food and clothing, possessions, houses, cars, whatever. Throw it all in there. Second things, you don't get second things by putting them first. Lewis says, you get second things only by putting first things first. So when we put the kingdom first, God provides for what we actually need in life. And we get all the first things, and everything's in proper order. Now, Lewis goes on to give this really uh, helpful illustration about this. He says, and it's sort of that idea of possessions and worry and anxiety taking away and subtracting. He says, the woman who puts her dog at the center of her world, and people do this. The woman who puts her dog at the center of the world not only loses her humanness, but she also loses a proper love for her dog. You have to think about that. She's loved that lesser creature too much, Lewis says. You can put food in there, you can put anything in there, entertainment, travel, whatever. He actually uses the idea of food and drink and losing the love For the taste of food and drink because of an excessive, immoderate use and putting second things in the place of the first. I think Jesus is saying that he says, notice what he says. He says, he says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old for where your treasure is there. Your heart will be also, he says back in verse 31, seek his kingdom. The first thing and all of these things will be added to you. All the second things will be provided for you. Now, I think there is a fourth remedy, and I think that all the other remedies are sort of bound up in it. And Jesus doesn't say anything about it in this section in Luke 12. But it is all about who he is and what he came to do. How do I know? How do I know that if I give and become a generous person and I care for others and I use my wealth to, to bless others? And I, how do I know I'm storing up treasure in heaven? How do I know? How do, because you want to be assured? He goes to the cross and he says, I've given myself for you. I gave everything. I took all your sin, all your greed, all your anxiety, all your worry. All of that on myself. I take all the wrath of God. I take the eternal judgment. I break the power of sin. The Father, Paul will say, if he did not spare his own son, I mean, you can't even spare a couple thousand bucks to the church. God didn't spare his son. He didn't spare his son. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Um, that's the remedy. If I live in anxiety and fear in order to safeguard a covetous, greedy heart, it's because I haven't seen who Christ is and what he's done for me. And I don't really believe the gospel. I'm not believing the gospel. How do I seek first the kingdom? I do it by seeking first Christ. Right? He's got to be the treasure. Um, Thomas Chalmers preached one of the great sermons in church history in the 19th century in the church of scotland it was called the expulsive power of a new affection i've mentioned it to you many times and that's what we need we need an expulsive power of a new affection and so when the cross draws my heart like a magnet to christ and i understand what he's done for me all the second things become very insignificant they all they all sort of fade away in the sight of what is better, the better. Um, I'm going to be brutally honest with you as I I close here. I I have, I struggle with acknowledging that I have far too much greed in my heart and covetousness. I drive a 13-year-old car. It may not appear like I have a greedy heart, But I've got the same evil heart you have. And together, Jesus Christ is healing us of holding on to possessions far too tightly. Forget if it was D.L. Moody or one of the great evangelists. He said, if you want to know about the condition of a man's soul, look at his checkbook. Look at her checkbook. You know, how little we give to the Lord reflects how much greed is in our hearts. How little we give to others reflects how much greed is in our hearts. Um, it is my prayer, it is my sincere prayer, that the Lord would free us from covetousness and greed, and then by way of um, by way of association, anxiety, and worry and fear that are dishonest, dishonoring to Him and distrusting. Um, Jesus has done everything so that we don't have to live the rest of our life in covetousness and greed. That's what he wants. He wants us to give it away. Martin Luther had this great quote. Um, Luther said, God put fingers on our hand for money to slide through. I have a friend who, years ago, when he was a kid, he, he um, cut off some of his fingers in a woodshop, we were driving through a toll booth in Florida once, and the woman, uh, the toll booth, the lady, I don't know what you call him, you'll correct me later, she put the money down, it went through his finger, I started laughing, I shouldn't have. That's the image, though. Luther wants you to think of your own hands and money going through it to the work of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Use your wealth for the kingdom. You're investing it. Lay it up. Lay it up. Let's do that. Let's think about ways we can be generous. Let's think about ways we can use the possessions we have to bless others and care for others and care for the needy. And we have so much. We've been given, all of us, so much. My admonishment to you this morning and to myself is that we would take these things with the utmost seriousness. We wouldn't just think about them for a half hour and then move on with our life. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? So go, rest, be generous. Know that your father will care for you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we do acknowledge how we need our hearts and our lives changed. We know that you don't want our money, but you want our hearts. And so we pray our God that you would please work in us by your grace Through the word that we have just heard, we pray that you would please be merciful to us, that you would be kind and compassionate to us, that you would teach us uh, to care first and foremost about the kingdom, to seek first your kingdom, and to know that you'll give us every secondary need in life. Lord, would you please work in us and make us radically generous and radically giving, Lord? Would you please... Help us to redeem the days that we have left here on earth, that we might be a blessing to your church, to the ministry of the gospel, and to the needs of the poor and those especially in the church that are needy. We pray, our God, that you would please have mercy on us in Christ to this end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.